Episode 7 of By Our Own Hands Hugh opposed Brian because he could not trust him. Brian's widespread support was due to his ability to make peace with the English. Brian was hailed as the Peacemaker King, who kept the English from Gaelic lands, but Hugh believed that Brian's efforts were to ensure rewards in favor from the English at the expense of his own people's well-being. When Brian made peace, there was always a price to be paid, and it was always paid by those who could least afford to do so. The English suspected what Hugh knew to be true. They began to offer Brian less but demand more. They demanded men to fight their wars. They stripped Tyrone of food and supplies. Brian was awarded with praise and gold. His people lost sons. They starved and perished. They began to whisper among themselves that Brian was not fit to rule. He had become a slave to the English, and they, his loyal subjects, had become slaves to him. Brian feared for his throne. He was forced to oppose the English. They invaded his lands and devastated his country. He devised a plan. He gathered the chiefs that still supported him. Chiefs arrived from various parts of Ireland to an assembly in Brian's great hall. Hugh was among them even though he did not support Brian. Brian told them that the English would not make peace with him. They were no longer satisfied sharing Ireland with Gaelic chiefs. They feared that Ireland would rise up and defeat them. The English were determined to destroy Gaelic Ireland before Gaelic Ireland could destroy them. His words were not true. It is true that the English of Ireland always desired land, but they had not begun a new campaign to conquer the whole of Ireland. His words echoed the greatest fears of the Gaelic chiefs. The chiefs feared for their thrones, and they feared for all of Ireland. They rose up in that great hall, their voices in unison, and called for English blood. We will banish them from our country. We will take their land. We will plunder and slaughter. We will cover this land with the feet of our warriors. We will deliver ourselves with our own hands, they shouted. Brian was quiet as the other chiefs shouted and promised to wreak havoc on the English. Finally, he stood and shouted above all of them, We cannot defeat the English on our own. His words struck like stones and silenced the chiefs. We need an ally that hates the English as much as we do. We need deliverance, but we cannot deliver ourselves. We need the Scots, Brian shouted. As his voice thundered through the hall, Hugh rose from his seat and walked out of the assembly. Some of the chiefs present followed Hugh. Most of the chiefs chose to stay. The hall was silent for several minutes. Brian glared menacingly at the chiefs who had turned their backs on him and left the great hall. He stood before the raging fire in the hall hearth. He held out his hands. Scotland will deliver us from the evil curse of the English, as they have just delivered themselves, he shouted. One of the chiefs present shouted his approval. 
he was followed by another, and that is how it happened. They believed themselves to have lifted the lid to Job's urn of good and evil, while they had lifted the lid to the other, the urn of pure evil. In time, they would be respected by neither gods nor men. Hugh returned to Leash. He was respected, but he had the least of all of the chiefs of the seven seps. His family had never recovered from their losses during the time of the Norman conquest. He was a prince of his name, but he was not a prince of his ancestral lands. He possessed no armies. He did possess wisdom and intelligence, but his words were not enough to sway his countrymen. The great seps, the Odevois, Odalins, Mikavois, Okelis, Olalors, and Omors were won over by the might and glory of their chiefs who swore allegiance to Brian O'Neill, king of Tyrone. Brian acted swiftly and sent an emissary to Scotland. King Robert agreed to send his brother Edward on the condition that Edward would be crowned High King of Ireland. The Irish kings would rule their lands, but they would bow down to Edward. King Robert praised the venture and stated that there would be a grand Gaelic alliance against England. Brian did not divulge these details to the many chiefs that swore allegiance to him. Edward arrived with thousands of men on the shores near Carrickfergus. The rains fell relentlessly, even though it was the month of May. The heavens rained down righteousness, but this did not bring salvation. Edward's army marched ahead, and soon their numbers swelled with Irish volunteers. They were met by an army of English soldiers, and the English were swiftly defeated. The English ran to the sanctuary of Carrickfergus Castle as the town fell all around them. Edward promised Brian riches, titles, and the sovereignty of Tyrone. Brian bowed down to Edward and swore fealty. He proclaimed Edward the High King of Ireland. Those who had given their allegiance to Brian watched as he crowned another. Edward had not come to deliver, but instead to conquer. He believed that the land he claimed as his own was his enemy and that it would remain so until it was firmly in his grasp. Only those that joined his fight could be spared. All others were a threat to his crown. Their blood he would spill, English and Irish alike. Edward's army marched south, taking one town after another and leaving each in ashes. He cut down young and old alike. He gave no quarter. Irish chiefs defected, unable to slaughter their own, and they too were cut down. Edward's army was welcomed by Leash. Hugh was the only chief of the seven seps that did not greet the victorious Scots as they marched into his country. His absence was noticed, and King Edward sent for him. Hugh was brought to the stronghold of the O'Moores. He was brought before King Edward, who was seated at a place of honor at the chief's table. King Edward eyed him suspiciously before speaking to him. Why have you failed to greet your king? Edward asked. Hugh was silent. 
He looked about the great hall at the chiefs and the warriors. He looked at their splendid attire and their proud countenances. Envy burned inside of him. It was his greatest vice. His poverty had always burned him with shame. He finally looked at King Edward. His shame mixed with feelings of awe and fear. He knew he should speak plainly and possibly convince some of those present to oppose King Edward, but he found himself unable to do so. Dorian, why did you fail to greet your king? Edward asked again. I am a poor chief. I have no army of my own. My family's legacy was lost when your ancestors wed in my country. How could I greet you with no offer of armed men? I cannot even give you a fine gift befitting a king, Hugh said. Edward stared at Hugh. His face was contorted with anger, but then he grew thoughtful and his expression softened. My ancestors? Edward asked. Yes, Strongbow and Princess Aoife, he answered. And once they wed, your family's legacy was lost? How so? Edward asked. My ancestors' lands were acquired by Norman knights at the time of your illustrious ancestors' wedding. My family was reduced to poverty, Hugh said. Did your family oppose these Norman knights? Edward asked with a coy smile. No, my ancestor was the Brahan and loyal servant of King Dermod and Princess Aoife. He returned to Leash, and his lands were gone. He could not oppose the Norman knights because he had no army or gold to pay for one, Hugh said. Edward's smile faded. Your family was loyal to my ancestors, and they were reduced to poverty. I can remedy that. You will need to be my loyal servant and serve me as your ancestors served my ancestors. If you can agree to this, you will have all of your family's legacy returned to you and more, he said. Hugh was stunned and fell to his knees. Tears stung his eyes. He thought of the shame that had always burned inside of him. He wondered if he had overcome the fire that threatened him or if he had been overcome. He thought of his ancestral lands and quickly pushed his doubts aside. He fixed his eyes on King Edward, his king. Your Highness is too kind, he said in a low voice. The hall erupted into cheers. Edward smiled and motioned for Hugh to rise. Please be seated by my side. I have heard that you are a man of great wisdom, and I need such men to advise me. I am afraid that I have more passion than wisdom, Edward said. He smiled and suddenly appeared much younger than his years. It is a wise man that can criticize himself, Hugh replied. Edward nodded. Hugh rose and joined him at the table. He joined his future to Edward. He joined his family and their legacy to Edward. Edward had arrived at a difficult time. For two years, little grain had ripened in the sodden earth. The cool rains that had been nearly ceaseless gave way to icy, bitter temperatures. The earth grew cold and stone-like. It wouldn't yield to the plow. The long-awaited harvest was meager, and all knew the next was as good as lost. Ireland's people were hungry, and many months of darkness still lay ahead. 
Salvation was to be found in their livestock because their herds had survived and would sustain them until the earth was renewed. Edward's army camped in leash for several months. Hugh watched in dismay as the Scots began to strip his country as the English had stripped Tyrone. Edward assured him that his army would soon be victorious and supplies would arrive from Scotland. His people's suffering would be short-lived. One day, an old woman arrived at Edward's court. She was dressed like a beggar. Hugh noticed her before Edward's guards did. She stared at Hugh, and he felt her eyes bore through him. She moved her heavy gaze from Hugh to Edward. I have come to speak with the king, she said. Her voice was low and hoarse. Edward's guards began to laugh. Edward was amused and nodded to her. Your king is at your service, he replied. I am not a leash woman. I am from another land, she said. Which land is that, Edward said, still smiling. It is far and near. You claim it for yourself, she said. Edward's smile faded. Speak plainly, woman, he said. The English attack us for our allegiance to you, she said. The war will soon be done, and the English will be no more, he said. We are in a terrible state with hunger, she said. God has sent us foul weather, and food is sparse, but, Edward said, it is true that God has plagued us with foul weather, but your Scots have created the famine. They raid our kingdoms, they steal our food, and send it to Scotland. What they don't steal, they devour like locusts, she said, her voice rising. Edward was stunned. His face contorted with fury. Hugh stepped forward. Be gone with you, woman, Hugh shouted. One of the guards grabbed her by the arm. She stared directly into Hugh's eyes. "'Tis found not in the tyrants, but in the forsaken. The time has come, she whispered. The guard dragged her away. Hugh watched as she was removed. The old woman's words echoed in his mind. "'What did she say to you?' Edward asked. "'Treachery,' Hugh said. He walked towards the guard that was taking her away. They moved swiftly out of the court. Hugh continued to follow them. The guard threw the old woman onto the ground. He kicked her and walked away. Hugh walked towards her. "'Who sent you?' he asked. She was silent. Hugh stepped close to her. "'Who sent you?' he asked again. "'Shame burns within you. You carry this shame, and now you believe that Edward has delivered you. He has not. He has not delivered any of us. We will all be carried away in a great wave. We will drown in our blood in tears,' she said. "'Have faith, woman. Have faith in your king and in Almighty God. We are to be delivered. If we are wrong to place our trust in Edward, God will send us a sign.' Do not lose faith, Hugh said. The woman stood and covered her head with her shawl. She walked away. Hugh watched her. He reminded himself that Edward's army was undefeated. God had given Edward so many victories, Edward would deliver them. Hugh had heard some whisper that they should throw their lot in with the English. They declared, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. 
He had heard others whisper that Ireland should rid herself of the English and the Scots. He knew that they could not deliver themselves of both. They needed one or the other, and God was on the side of the Scots. Hugh returned to Edward's court. The court had fallen quiet, and Edward had retired to his private room. He had given his guards orders that Hugh may enter, but no one else. When Hugh was led into Edward's room, he found Edward in an agitated state. Edward was seated near a fire, warming his hands. The glow from the fire was the only light in the room. This is a land of vipers. Those who have bowed before me now plot against me, Edward said bitterly. Many of your Irish subjects love you, my lord, and, Hugh began, I have been in leash for too long. I need to know who plots against me, Edward shouted, interrupting Hugh. Edward turned his back on him. I cannot tour this land. I have a war to fight. Even when I have defeated the English, I will not be able to move about this land unseen and undetected by my enemies. I need you to do this for me. I need you to be my eyes and my ears. You will disguise yourself as a beggar, and you will find out who seeks to destroy me. You will leave tomorrow, Edward said. As you command, my lord, Hugh said. Hugh turned to leave. Dorian, crowns are bloody things. When two kings fight over a crown, the victor is always the one who has shed the most blood. It must be done. Do not forget that, Edward said. Hugh stood motionless. I will share their ruin, Hugh whispered to himself. He turned around. Edward was facing the fire. His back was still turned to Hugh. Hugh's hands trembled. He felt heat rise within him. I will destroy those that threaten me and reward those that remain loyal to me, Edward said in a low voice. He turned and looked at Hugh. Do my bidding and you will share in my glory, he added with a smile. Hugh left the following morning to do as Edward commanded. He journeyed out of leash and entered the kingdom of Ivali, Offaly. The first village he arrived at was deserted. He walked to a cottage and opened the door. He entered and began to look around. Baskets were scattered about. He could see empty spaces devoid of dust where larger baskets, chests, and urns had once stood. He reached into the hearth and felt the ashes. They were cold. He saw a broken egg on the floor that had dried. A small amount of beans and oats had been spilled onto the floor, too. A mug was lying on the floor with a wine stain near it. It looked as if it had been dropped suddenly with its contents spilling onto the floor. He walked to a ladder leading into a loft. He ascended the ladder and looked about the loft. He saw a straw mattress with no bedclothes. A candle had been knocked over and wax had melted onto the floor. A small wash basin was turned over. He returned to the main room and left the cottage. He entered the next nearest cottage and found that cottage was in the same state, abandoned, emptied of goods, and in disarray. He left the cottage and saw a small barn behind it. 
The barn door was open. He entered and saw that it too was devoid of life and in a state of disarray. He walked about the remainder of the village, entering every cottage he came across. Every cottage was in the same state. His step quickened as he proceeded through the village. Finally, he came to a small stone church. He was nearly breathless. He entered and stopped at the sound of a muffled cry. It was the sound of life. He stood motionless for several moments, but found that he could no longer hear the muffled cry. He began to search frantically about the church until he found the source of the noise. Crouched alongside the wall in the far corner was a young woman. Her clothes had once been fine, but had become filthy and torn. Her hair was hanging about her face. Her face was etched with tear as she eyed Hugh. He carefully walked towards her, extending his hand. Let me help you, he said. She did not move. Please let me help you, he said, still extending his hand. She stared at him with wide eyes and remained motionless. He sat down and watched her for a minute before speaking. Where are your neighbors? Why are you here alone? he asked. The Scots came. They took everything, our food and our animals. The men of the village tried to stop them. The Scots took them too. They returned and took the rest of us. We were taken to the river, she said. Hugh reached for her hand. She flinched. He held it gently. You were taken to the river and, he asked, they forced us into the river. I ran away before I could be pushed into the raging waters. I returned later and everyone was gone, she said, her voice barely a whisper. Hugh felt sick. He looked away from her. She continued her tale, still speaking in a faint whisper. I returned to the village. I hoped that someone else may have survived. I checked every cottage, and I could not find a soul. I fear they are all dead. You will come with me, he said. You are a beggar. I will be a burden to you, she said. You will not be a burden. I will take you as my wife, he said. He did take her as his wife, and they continued his journey together. She was Blahnut. At first she was his hostage, and then she was his companion. She learned that he was Edward's servant, and then she learned that he was not. He learned that she too had been Edward's servant in her own way, and then she had ceased to be. They traveled from one village to the next in search of food and life. They found little of both. Some villages were deserted, others stirred with some life. All were irrevocably changed and would bear the scars of all they had endured for years to come. The land had become an open grave. The darker half of the year did not cease. A layer of ash lay upon everything the eye could see and all that it could not. The living mingled with the dead and countless souls could not rest. The restless souls were stripped of life and death. Each unsettled stone where a last breath was stolen before life and death were stripped away became devoid of all that is a part of that holy cycle, the cycle of life and death. 
each unsettled stone became a spot that could not die or be renewed. It became a place of hungry grass. Hugh and Blahnut wandered for many months. One day he turned to her and spoke these words. We will return to Edward. You swore you no longer did his bidding, she said accusingly. I will do his bidding once more. He told me that he wished for me to find who seeks to destroy him. I will return and reveal to him one who seeks to destroy him. I will rid this land of him. I will deliver us with my own hands. I will not rest until I do so. I will destroy Edward before he can destroy all of Ireland, he said. They began to journey towards Edward. Unbeknownst to them, his army had been relentlessly pursued by the English and had moved several times. It took a year of wandering through devastated lands before they reached him in the county of Loch. Hugh and Blachnut were nearly starved when they reached the place where Edward and his army had been camped for weeks. This place was Fahart. As they approached, they heard the deafening silence they had encountered so many times in their journey. They did not find a camp or an army of Scots. Instead, they found a bloody battlefield littered with corpses. A banner was buried in the mud. It was not an English one. It was the banner of the Scots. Hugh knew that Edward would not have allowed his men to leave his banner buried in mud. He was correct. Edward had been cut down by the English in a ferocious battle. Many of the chiefs that had supported him fell by his side, including Brian O'Neill. Edward's body was quartered and pieces were sent to the four provinces of Ireland. His head was sent to the King of England. He was denied the rest. He denied countless souls and was condemned to suffer their fate. He, too, was stripped of life and death. Hugh and Blachnot continued to wander until they came to a small cottage not far from the battlefield. They lay down on the floor of the deserted cottage. Neither dared speak the words they both knew to be true. Edward was defeated, and he must be dead. Hugh had not, and now could not, destroy the man that had so devastated Ireland. Hugh knew that he had not overcome, but instead he had been overcome. He closed his eyes for the last time. The old woman appeared before him, even though his eyes remained closed. She leaned close and whispered in his ear, you cannot measure the depths of the heart or grasp the complexity of the mind. How then can you understand God? You cannot, but you still put God to the test. God did not send you a sign, but he did not fail. It was you that failed. Edward and his Scots were not favored by God. You were favored by God, and he gave you all that you needed to deliver yourself. Know this before you take your last breath. Your child will not be born in your land. Your child's legacy will be a burden. The curse will not die with you. Hugh died of hunger that night. Blachnot knew that she was with child and started to journey towards Leash to find Hugh's people. She wandered for weeks before she reached the border of Leash. 
she found herself facing an English army that was marching out of leash. She was not fast enough to outrun them, and she was carried away to Dublin. After months of captivity, she managed to escape with the help of a young Irishman who had been captured too. They fled to the mountains of Wicklow. It was there that she had her child. She married the young man. He had been a servant of Edward's. He had served in England's household in Scotland and had followed him to Ireland. He had in his possession a note that he had found in a keepsake box. The note contained a prophecy written long before. It was written in Isabella's hand.